Hello. I'm Sasha. And I'm Ezra. And welcome to another episode of our podcast concerning climate. On today's show, we have Dr. Tymon McPherson. All right, Tymon McPherson is faculty at the New School and is director of the Urban Systems Lab. He studies and advances research in urban ecology to advance resiliency, sustainability, and justice. He's also lead author for the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. What kind of work do you do? Good question. Um, So I do a number of different things. And it's interesting because I was trained as an ecologist. So my background is very much in ecology. Um, But I really got into questions about how climate change is affecting cities through trying to understand cities as ecosystems. And when that, when I sort of made this transition into really trying to think about cities like you, like an ecologist would think about a forest or a lake or a stream, um, I sort of instantly got very interested in questions about how climate change is changing cities, is affecting cities, um, and the way in which, climate change is causing havoc in cities through some of the kinds of extreme events that happen. Like for example, um, the hurricane that then turned into a, you know, a tropical storm Ida, uh, which came through New York city and caused really extreme flooding. So that's basically what um, I do is I study how climate change will impact um, urban environments, including people, critical infrastructure, And then maybe the other aspect, which really builds on my ecological background, is trying to understand the role of nature as a solution to climate change, which it isn't a complete solution, but it's a very important part of thinking about how we can really work with nature as a way to regulate and moderate our our urban environments. So what is your definition of climate change? Well, climate change is one, a global phenomenon, right? Um, The entire planet is, the climate is changing. Um, And so from a definition perspective, um, I think it's it's pretty easy to say that, you know, is is the climate changing more than it should be over a very, you know, short period of time. And one thing we can see is that with the increase of climate, um, of carbon in the atmosphere, that there's a very tight relationship with a warming of the planet and that warming is causing the climate to change. So global warming is the warming of the planet caused by human driven uh, carbon emissions. But then climate change is the way in which when you heat up the planet, it changes the climate system. So in in a simple way, climate change is the warming of the planet that changes the nature of the climate from what it used to be, which is very stable over the last 10,000 years, to something that's changing very fast on us. So what are some things that um, you work on and that your field works on that helps our cities be more resilient to climate change? Great question, Ezra. So we work in the urban systems lab um, at the new school in New York City, one of the main things we work on is trying to understand what kinds of climate changes will happen in the near term and farther term future, right? So we already kind of know what we're experiencing now. (laughs) Storms are coming and we can sort of see the impacts. Um, What we're trying to understand is what kinds of heat waves 
or flood events or storms are likely to happen and who will be most affected. So this gets into these questions of equity and justice because one of the things that we have seen in the past and we're seeing currently, and we're also trying to understand how this may happen in the future, is that people, some people are more affected than others, right? Um, people who have less income, black and brown communities tend to experience climate-driven extreme events like heat waves and floods more than others. Their homes are more affected, their lives are more affected. And so that's one of the big things that we really look at is who's gonna be most affected uh, by different kinds of climate change-driven extreme events in the future. And I'm saying extreme events, which may be a general term, or you can think of it as a technical term too, but the way we think of it is you know, catastrophic flooding, um, extreme heat waves, the kinds of things that cause serious human challenges, but also challenges to the infrastructure and technology and the services that cities provide. Like, is the subway running? Is, you know, are the cell phone towers actually you know, up and running? Is there electricity? Things that we see on a regular basis go down, you know, suffer or become unavailable to certain people more than others. So that's a big thing uh, that we study is trying to understand who's impacted most by climate change. And the reason why we are asking that question and trying to answer it is because we want to figure out how do you prioritize solutions for those who need them most. And that's the real thrust of everything that we're working on is trying to help cities, mayors, governments, community organizations prioritize their investments because there's a limited amount of money to go around, right? Prioritize those investments in the places for the people who need the most. So what do you find is the most rewarding part of your work and why? Well, I think almost any scientist would tell you that the most rewarding part of their work is when the science actually has some kind of impact in the real world. Science is slow, right? Uh, you, it takes a long time to discover something new, uh, running experiments, running models, whatever it is that, that scientists are doing can often take a really long time. And then sometimes it takes even much longer to see that it matters, right? Like at some level, we know understanding more about climate change increases our knowledge about climate change. And our hope is if you have more knowledge, then you can make better decisions, we can make better plans, and we can prepare for the climate change that's coming. But that's not necessarily always true, right? Um, really, what's really difficult is to translate knowledge into action, real action that's actually happening in the real world. So the thing that gets us most excited, that I get most excited about, is when some of our work is actually turned into a plan for the city or a new policy, right? So for example, um, in where I work a lot is in New York City. And in New York City, um, recently we passed a new bit of legislation. So a new law called the Climate Mobilization Act. And one of the things that this new law did is it said, in New York City, you can't build a new building unless you put a green roof or a solar roof on it. Well, that's pretty big change from having no regulation to having actual regulation that says we have to green the city, we have to make it more efficient, we have to make it more resilient, right? 
Um, and some of our work on green roofs and some of our advocacy work uh, has turned that science into actual laws that are gonna change over time slowly the way New York City develops. And so that kind of work is something that is extremely meaningful when that happens. Similarly, um, in New York City, actually just a couple months ago, they launched what they call the New York City Stormwater Resilience Plan, which sounds very complicated and technical, but basically what it says is it's a plan to try to address this issue of storm water, right? When it rains heavy, the water floods the streets and it causes so many problems, um, so much damage, really, really a challenging issue when you have flooding in a city with, where so many people are packed in so densely. And the work that went into developing this plan is a bunch of models to try to understand what those future flood risks might be as a way to develop priorities for how we might change the city to make it more adapted, more resilient, basically better prepared for flooding events. And so that's another example of what gets us really excited about our work is you can sit on a computer and run these complicated you know, mathematical models all day long. And sometimes you see something very interesting and scientifically it's exciting. What's really exciting is when the city says, thank you, we're gonna make a plan to fix the problem because you've helped give us the knowledge that we needed to do that. And that's, I think, really the most meaningful part of doing this kind of science. Um, with all of the uh, flooding from Hurricane Ida, have you learned anything new um, about, about from that? Well, I think, some things that we had some thoughts about, but now we have real information on is that when Hurricane Ida came through, not only in um, Louisiana and southern parts of the states, but also it moved up through the northeast of the United States um, and, and hit in New York and New Jersey, where a lot of rain came down, right? Um, three inches of rain in a single hour, seven, eight inches of rain, you know, over the course of the storm event. We knew it was going to flood. <laughs> That's not surprising. Um, what we've realized, I think, and, and in particular, New York City has realized is that basements where, which are below ground. And if you think about it from a gravity perspective, right, where's the water going to go? It's going to go downhill and it's going to go into whatever storage area it can be. And basements are one of those places. So the, the challenge of how to protect people who live in basements all of a sudden is a major realization we kind of knew about. Uh, and we've been actually talking about um, on the New York City panel for climate change for the last couple months, we've been saying we've got to do something about basement apartments. And then all of a sudden Ida happened and now everyone is talking about. It. And that's both a terrible thing because so many people suffered. It's really terrible damage. It's, it's not a pretty sight what happened in New York City, but it's also a good thing because now we've woken up. We've realized that we can't ignore this issue of basement apartments are a seriously dangerous place in extreme rainfall or when we have coastal storms, and we are going to have to solve that problem. Not everyone knows exactly how to solve it. These things are complicated, right? You can't just immediately move 100,000 people out of basement apartments. Um, but we do know that we're going to have to work on this, and that's a really important thing that we realized during Hurricane Ida that there are certain things that we must solve and we're gonna have to solve them very quickly. And I think that uh, that, that was sort of a wake up call for the city. In recent events, has the public become less ignorant about climate change? 
It's a great question. I think for one, I think the public is much more aware of climate change than they were say five years ago or 10 years ago. There seems to be much wider agreement, especially in the US, which has been a place all around the world that hasn't agreed that climate change is happening, that climate change is real and that climate change is already causing problems. Um, it hasn't agreed on that in, in the same way a lot of other nations around the world have, but that has changed. It's definitely clear that the majority of the public are understanding that the wildfires and the hurricanes and the heat waves and the floods and the droughts have a serious climate change signal to them, right? Climate change is part of what's causing those. So that's very promising. That's a, that's a very positive thing that we're all kind of waking up at a, at a much more general and agreed on level that climate change is real climate change is happening and that we have to do something about it. What is not very clear yet, um, Ezra, to your question about is it positive or negative? So that I would say is all very positive, right? It's movement in the right direction. What's not clear is that we're gonna make the changes that we need to make climate change less severe, right? So that's the big question. I, and I think that's what you're getting at, but you can follow up if you wanna ask another question about this. I think what you're getting at is like, is climate change gonna be really bad? or medium or moderate, right? Uh, and we don't know. It, at, at the moment, it seems like everyone waking up to this at a much better level than they were five or 10 years ago is a seriously positive signal. But the changes that we have to make in order to actually limit the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere to make sure that the planet is not warming, you know, two degrees or three degrees or four degrees Celsius more, which if you translate it into Fahrenheit are some pretty big numbers, right? Um, that is gonna take a different level of political will, some very major economic investments. And I think social activism that raises this as a public issue in a way that isn't just about recognition anymore. So that's, a, that's the first thing. We recognize now climate change is happening. That's a very good start. Now we have to change the way we live and that's harder. So I think there's a lot of really amazing signals of, of how people are doing this, the way in which people are growing food in their backyards, or the way in which people are, are thinking about their carbon emissions and the clothes that they buy and the cars that they drive, thinking about transitioning to renewable energy, all, a lot of things that both local community groups and individuals are doing, but also our, our, you know, our federal administration is trying to do a better job with. These are all very, very good things. What we don't know is, is it enough yet? And I think my hunch on this is that we're gonna to have to be more aggressive about changing. Uh, how, um, how can urban ecosystems uh, protect against the effects of climate change? Nature is one of the most important allies that we have for learning to adapt to climate change because it's already happening, right? but also in absorbing carbon and limiting the magnitude of the climate change. So that's one of the amazing things about something that these days we've been calling nature-based solutions. Because everyone wants to know, what's the solution to climate change? Well, the answer is really simple. There are a lot of solutions. There are a lot of solutions, right? We need to transition our uh, car driving to electric, that, but not just electric, electric that is powered by renewable energy sources. So we're not burning more fossil fuels to drive our cars or our trucks or airplanes or whatever it is, right? Um, we need to do a lot of things to reduce the amount of carbon going in the atmosphere. Nature can absorb carbon. 
it's not a complicated process, right? If you grow a plant on your windowsill in, in your house, it's going to suck in carbon into its leaves because that's how photosynthesis happens, right? It absorbs carbon. That is actually how a plant grows. So every time we plant a tree, every time you plant a garden, you're sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. So nature is an incredible ally for that, but it also regulates the climate. So this is, I think, one of the most important things for not just what we call mitigating climate, which is about absorbing carbon mostly. The other is adapting to climate because certain amount of climate change is already happening. And so we have to deal with it. And in order to deal with it, to adapt to it, to cope with these kinds of events that are happening, we need to make them less severe. And nature can help with that too, because trees provide shade and cooling on very hot days, right? Nature is porous. It's not like pavement, right? When it rains on the pavement, what happens? It just sits on the surface. It runs downhill very quickly. And, it, and if it rains a lot, it piles up and all of a sudden you have a flood. When it rains in the forest or it rains on a wetland, or even it rains on your backyard and lawn, most of that water goes into the soil, right? It, it infiltrates down. So nature absorbs water. So it absorbs heat, it absorbs water, it absorbs actually the worst challenges we face with climate change. With, and so nature is really incredible um, opportunity for us to reinvest in nature, to reconnect to nature as humans who are natural beings, right? Um, but also to use it as a climate solution. And I think that's something we're rediscovering that nature is one of the most important climate solutions we have. And it, the interesting thing about it is it's a climate solution, but it's also a health solution, right? Um, it has so many other kinds of benefits. So I'm just personally very excited about the ways in which we can think about restoring degraded um, ecosystems, the ways we can think about planting, planting trees around our schools and our sidewalks and in our streets and our towns, uh, and really starting to think about greening, not just from some sustainability, but from an actual like green, green plants, things that grow and spreading that around everywhere we can. The greener that we can make this planet, the more climate chill it will be. So you touched us on this already, but how can we specifically help our cities make or, or become more resilient to climate change? Sure. Yeah. How to make them more resilient. So, I mean, you know, thinking about what resilience means is an important uh, piece to this, right? So when we think about resilience, what, what we really mean is how can we make sure that things don't fall apart? Um, and, and they do, right? When a tornado comes through a town, it rips things apart. Um, when, when a hurricane uh, comes through New Orleans or, or New York or Houston, um, it causes a lot of damage. So what we really want to do is to make our cities in a way where they can survive these things and not just survive, like do okay. Not, not cause so much damage, not cause so much um, you know, damage to people's lives, not cause much so much damage to our houses and our buildings and our roads. And so that's what resilience is all about. Nature is an incredible way to do that because it can take the edge off that extreme nature of these kinds of storms and other kinds of um, climate change driven extreme events. So that's a really important piece, right? If, it, if there's less flooding, 
because nature, there's more nature in the city and it's absorbing more water, then the flood will not be as destructive. If there's a, you know, if heat waves are going up because the climate is warming and, and our regions are warming and our cities are already really hot, if we can cool our cities down, then they won't be as hot. The heat waves won't be as intense. People, people won't suffer as much. So nature is an incredible ally as we talked about, but it's not only nature that we need to work on. We have to change the way we build our buildings. Um, we, they, right now we pave roads with all these black surfaces that make them extremely hot. It's incredible how hot a road can be. Well, they should be more reflective. In a lot of cities, our roofs are tar covered, literally just like the street, right? It's as if you have this black oil covered, tar covered street. We're doing the same thing with our roofs. Well, if, we, if you just paint them white, they become more reflective. And that reflects that sun energy, that, that um, infrared energy back out. So it's not being absorbed into the buildings and making these buildings like bake and hold on to heat. Just painting a roof white changes things. Making um, pavements more reflective changes things. So in, or what we call infrastructure, roads, buildings, the surfaces of those all have to change. There's smarter ways to resurface our cities. So that's an infrastructural change. Um, another one is socially. One of the things we, we learned from the 2003 heat wave in Europe, which was extremely devastating, and you can look this up if you're not familiar with it, but it was one of the worst heat wave events that have ever happened in, in the last hundred years. Um, one of the things we learned is that people need to take care of people. So you can cool the city, but sometimes it's just gonna get too hot and we're gonna have to deal with that. So what happens when that? That means we need to know who has prior medical conditions, who is elderly, who needs a little bit of help, who needs to be checked up on because maybe they're stuck in a very hot apartment or a hot house uh, and someone needs to go check on them. So there are social solutions that are really about building community and really investing in communities as a safe space where people can help each other out during these times of crisis. Because what seems very clear from the climate projection work that um, many are doing and we are doing as well, is that we are gonna have some tough times. They're definitely coming and, and you're seeing them already. The question is, and this is your question Ezra about resilience, how can we be resilient to them? And that means we have to think about it from a community perspective, building social relationships and, and the ability for people to take care of each other. That's really important to build community. We have to make sure that they're not as extreme, which means investing in nature to make it not as hot, make it flood not as much, right, uh, for example. And then we have to change our infrastructure. It's the way we built for the last hundred years, traps heat, creates floods. It's not just from climate change. It's because we built our cities in a way that actually makes them worse. And we have to change that. And all of the, the, the amazing thing to me is all of those things are doable. Every single thing I mentioned, we know how to do it but we have to do them all. And it really means um, um, working on all of those areas at the same time. Um, for more like people who want to do more work and try to help even if they don't know the science behind it or they're not like as experienced as you, what can the average citizen do to help make cities more resilient and prevent major flooding and heat waves? I think there are so many ways that people can be involved and make change that it's extremely, it, it gives me so much optimism because 
every single human on the planet can be doing something positive to help make climate change less severe and to help all of us adapt to it better as, as it's still occurring, right? So there's literally lists of hundreds of things that you can do. And I wanna encourage you to anyone who's listening to this to really kind of seek these out, right? This can be about um, being smart about what you buy uh, and what you consume and, and thinking about where it's coming from and who's being affected by it. And uh, is it from a, you know, a, a group or a company that is taking climate change seriously, that is trying to reduce the emissions, whether that's from food, whether that's from clothes, right? Um, all of us can be thinking about ways we can transition though, how we um, power our homes to power them with renewable energy sources. Uh, it's not, not everyone has the same ability to do that, but, but we, can go, we can go march uh, on our local legislators and we can go talk to our city councils and we can say, look, we have to have better options if you don't have those options. And if you already have those options, then let's get transitioned to them. Let's make sure that we're not using fossil fuels for anything. Now that you can't do that overnight, but we can all be working on that, right? Um, we can think about it in the way we um, transport ourselves around, right? What kind of transportation are you using? Um, can, you, can you work with your parents to say, look, maybe you can't buy a different car next year, but maybe we can start working on um, bicycling more as a family, or maybe we can start thinking about, look, when that, when that car uh, gets too old and dies, then you know, maybe we can figure out how to invest in something that is electric and runs off on fossil fuels. Maybe you can start transitioning your home to uh, using wind power or solar power, which is increasingly more available. 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't that easy to power your home off solar or wind. There's so many more resources like that now. So when I said there are social solutions, there's nature-based solutions, and there's like infrastructure and technological solutions, well, what that really means is that if you want to get involved, you can get involved in any of those aspects. You can be planting trees and gardens and um, doing things that can help cool your neighborhood and increase the water absorption in your neighborhood. You can get involved in a community to help make sure that you're checking up on elderly people who may not be able to get around as much when something, um, when some kind of crisis happens. We can be forming groups that allow us to create community together and do that. You can go find environmental organizations of which there are thousands and thousands that you can join and say, hey, I want to volunteer. Help me learn, you know, what it is that you're doing and how I can be helpful. So I, I, I love this question because people always ask, what can I do? And the answer is you can do a million things, but you don't have to do a million things and you don't have to do everything. But pick one, pick, pick one of those million options and get involved. And if all of us do that, we're going to change the world. And I think that's, that's kind of the amazing thing about this is the world is changing on us. It's a little scary sometimes, but we have most of the solutions that we need to solve this problem, but we all have to get involved. And there's so many ways to do it. So find your local environmental organizations or community organizations, get involved in the activism side of really trying to push the political side of this. Um, definitely get involved in, with your family and your friends. Talk to them about it. Tell them, you know, how you feel about it and say, hey, what can we do together? And I think, I think if we're all working on this, we're definitely going to solve this. Could you uh, talk a little bit about the, uh, the UN's intergovern Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and uh, your experience writing for it? Sure. Well, as you may have uh, noticed, um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, put out its first of a series of reports 
Um, they do this every six or seven years. A major report comes out from the, from the IPCC. And um, this last uh, report is not surprising. It's pretty dire about what it predicts might happen. Um, but again, no one can actually predict the future. The IPCC doesn't actually predict the future. I use that word intentionally so that I could say that's not what we do. Um, we provide projections that say, this is what the future could be like. It could be like this, not so bad. It could be sort of in the middle, pretty worrisome, but something we can deal with, or it could be, it could be really terrible. Um, and so it's been interesting working for the IPCC because all of us are trying to figure out how to both be honest about what could happen to provide the best available science so that that knowledge exists and everyone has access to it all around the world to be able to understand what the range of possibilities really are. That way we can, we can understand what, what is the worst case scenario? How do we make sure that doesn't happen? But within the IPCC, there's been this massive movement to make sure that we're talking about solutions, to make sure we're saying, look, it could be this bad, but it doesn't have to be because these are the things that we can do. This whole bundle of actions that are political, that are economic, that are community building, that are nature-based, um, that can make sure that those worst case scenarios don't happen. That can make sure that we're on this pathway to a future that is much more resilient, much more sustainable, right? Um, much more adapted. And so it's been interesting to work with the IPCC because, well, for one, during the COVID pandemic, um, normally what happens is, you know, every three, four months, hundreds of scientists get together, uh, you know, in the same room, in, in, in little other rooms, and we all kind of work together. Um, during the COVID pandemic, we've been doing this completely on Zoom, which has never happened before during the IPCC, which I'm sure didn't happen before going to school either, right? Um, that all of a sudden everyone's on Zoom and you and I are talking on Zoom um, or whatever platform that, that you have. But I think that's been an interesting part of the experience is learning to do the science together in a virtual environment and at the same time, try to shift what we do, which is, which is to move from what is the risks that we're worried about, but to understanding the risks and the solutions and what those together could really mean in terms of our futures. Um, if you had one piece of advice and or information that you could give to us and everyone listening, what would it be? Well, I'd say two things. Um, the first is to understand that the future is not determined, right? So what I, what I worry about uh, a, a lot actually is that most of the ways we talk about our future are negative, right? Especially when we talk about climate change. It's like all of these sort of doomsday scenarios and like, I like to read sci-fi. So, you know, science fiction and, and a lot of um, science fiction and climate science fiction called um, cli-fi, for example, it's very, it's very dystopian, right? It's like, here's all the terrible things that might happen in your future. And I think that one of the most important things is remember the future is not written, right? The future can be what we make it. And so it could, it could be really terrible, but it also could be really amazing. And so the first thing I think is really important is to realize like your future, all of our futures are for us to get involved and help determine what that's gonna be like. And yes, we need to have some, our eyes open about what those possibilities are so that we're not surprised. So that when Hurricane Ida happens, we aren't, we aren't shocked by it. We are woken up to what we need to be doing about it, 
right? Um, so that's the first thing I think is to realize like the future doesn't have to be negative. The future can be extremely positive, but it's the second point, which is it will only be so if we get to work. And there are amazing people all over the planet, young people all over the planet who are already working. They're getting to work on this problem. Uh, and I think that's true across multiple generations, that there is a cadre of people who are absolutely serious about, we can solve this problem. We have the tools that we need to solve it, whether they're technological tools, nature-based tools, human community building tools, right? Activism tools, ways to sort of work politically to make change. We know how to do those things. So the second piece really is pick one thing and get involved. Uh, the, the most important thing is that we're all in whatever way works for you, whether you're an artist, right? Or whether you're, uh, you're in, into sports or whether you, you know, love to read or write or whether you're good at math. It doesn't matter what your skill set is because every single one of those skills can be useful for helping us create a more positive world. And so the most important thing is that in whatever works best for you, what gets you excited and motivated and, and what you feel like, oh, I did something cool today, that you do it in a way that is also helping to decrease our climate impact. And if you can do that, if we can all be doing that in every single way, we're gonna solve this problem. So I think those are, those are two big things. One is to, is to realize, and I'll just kind of recap that, the future doesn't have to be dystopian. The future can be very positive. But the caveat is that it's gonna happen if we all get involved. And so pick something, pick one thing. And if you find that thing is easy, it's something I tell my students all the time. What you need to do is you need to be on the sustainability pathway. Just get on that road, whatever it is. It might be because you decide to become vegetarian. It might be because you say, I'm gonna lobby my parents to, to not drive cars burning on gasoline. Or it might be that you, you're gonna organize a rally at your school. Whatever it is, you're on the pathway. Once you figure out how to do that, you'll realize, well, that was easy. Let me pick something else. And as you get older, you'll take on more things, but you don't have to do it all at once. You just have to get started. And if we're all getting started on that pathway, then that pathway becomes massive. It becomes this global pathway for changing the climate on our planet and making our, our, all of our futures much more positive. And that is what I think your generation especially is, seems to be very motivated, very clear-headed about. And all I would say is just pick one thing. Don't let it overwhelm you. Just get started. And if that was easy, then add something to your list. You know, pick, pick, pick the next thing up and go for that too. Um, so yeah, that's all the questions we have for asking you today. Thanks so much. Absolutely. It's great talking with you both. Thanks, yeah. Sasha. Thanks, Ezra. And yeah. then thanks for making yeah. this uh, opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for watching. And remember to follow us on our Instagram at Concerning Climate Podcast. And remember to do good things for the environment. See you soon. Bye.